Thank you, Nelia. Psalm 63, a beautiful piece. The psalmist is on a journey in Psalm 63. O oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. There's longing as the as this psalm begins. And you could hear that in the music, couldn't you? Longing. But then, then verse 5 goes on. My soul will be satisfied as with rich food. There's, a, there's that longing fulfilled. Satisfaction. And not only satisfaction, but a, an ongoing fortification. Verse 8 goes on. My soul clings to you and your right hand upholds me. And it ends with this exaltation, which we could hear at the end of the psalm as well. The king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult. Exaltation. Well, let's, let's pray, shall we? Indeed, Father, we thank you for this, your word, and we thank you for the music that accompanies it, um, that fills uh, in our emotion and the longings of our spirit, the desires of our heart for you and for Christ who is revealed in this, the scriptures. We thank you that you indeed are our satisfaction and you are our strength and our endurance and you alone are worthy of praise. Now, by your spirit, open our hearts and our minds uh, to see the truths in this portion of your word. Again, in the name of Jesus, amen. All right, so Exodus 27, we'll pick it up at verse 20. And this is a section now that moves um, into what it is to be a holy people. The tabernacle instructions were, were given. Um, this is how the, the temp, temp, tabernacle is to be built. There was a template given. God gave Moses directly from heaven. In fact, the tabernacle on earth is representative. It's laid out in architecture the way things are in heaven. That's fascinating, isn't it? We'll probably touch on that a little bit more. Now, based on the, the tabernacle template, now we have a, a priestly uh, pattern. This is what the holy people are to be like in the holy place. Uh, chapter 27 and verse 20 talks about the lighting of the lamps. In fact, it begins specifically with the collection of oil. And there are several elements um, that go into this priestly function, this priestly role. Uh, there's the oil lamps mentioned, and then we get into the vestments, the clothing, dressed in his righteousness, as we would sing. And then the ordination, the, uh, the, the ceremony setting apart the, the servants of the Lord for the work of the Lord. But then it rounds out in chapter 30, coming back to the lamps. And another element of, of tabernacle furniture, the incense altar, alongside the lamps. So the lamps at the beginning, the lamps at the end, kind of bracket this whole section uh, related to the priestly office. One of the main things that they are to do is to attend the lamps, to make sure that the lamps are always lit, that there is always light emanating uh, and pure oil that is from there. Well, well, we'll come to those lamps and the incense altar a little bit later. Since they bracket this whole section, we'll, we'll talk about that at the end. After we talk about the vestments, vestments, clothing, clothing, 
Um, we, as a family, had a, a wedding celebration a week ago, and when there's a wedding, uh, there's all kinds of things to get ready, and part of that is the clothing. So, particularly dresses, do you notice? Try this dress, try this dress, try that dress, Troy, the other dress. Colors, dresses, uh, the guys, you know, it's important, but black will do. And, uh, and that was pretty much what the guys did, black. But it's a wedding, and there's wedding attire. Uh, culturally, socially, we, we dress for the occasion. Eh, maybe less than we used to. But there are still some places where the decorum uh, is important. Uh, one of the guys was, was talking about uh, a, a work picture the other day and in their office. And it had been a few years since they had taken a, an office picture. And some of the fellows had to, to borrow a sport jacket, a suit coat. Then they had to borrow one. I cannot fathom that. I love jackets. I love coats. I wore a jacket to school every day. I kept it on. Except, well, we won't go there. There was a girl that wanted to wear my jacket all the time. Her name was Nancy, actually, by the way. <laughs> but Nancy and I didn't go to school together. This Nancy didn't, and I didn't go to school till college, so it was another Nancy. Um, well, we better stop. I love jackets, you know, and it's important even, I mean, it's a security thing, but, but, I mean, where do you put your pen? And your glasses when they're not on your head. You know, you got your glasses, you got your pen, you got, you got breath mints. <laughs> Usually my wallet is in this side, but I didn't bring that in here. You know, you need pockets to put stuff, carry stuff, keys. You know, go to a meeting, and where are you going to put you Put them in your coat pocket. Anyway, interestingly, for the business picture, they wanted to have some kind of proper clothing. The look, the look. What is a priest supposed to look like? Oh, we have all of our mental images. Um, but this is an entirely different picture. There's a little artist rendition there in the center, the slide gives you just a, a little bit of a visual uh, as to what this could possibly look like. There's a really, uh, in the, the tabernacle priest, the high priest had about seven pieces. Um, we have six overtly listed, and the seventh is kind of implied. He had the, the breast piece, the ephod, the robe, the woven tunic, the turban, and the sash. And on the turban, the description will come a little bit later, in Exodus, the, the golden medallion that's on the, the front of the turban says, holy to the Lord, and that's set apart as a, a separate element, seven elements within the priestly vestments. Um, notice what's missing. Well, there's no shoes. And you can't see it real well. I could see it great on my computer screen. His little toes are sticking out the, the bottom of his robe. He's barefoot. It, it would seem that the priest would go into the tabernacle without shoes. 
Now, this would remind us earlier in the narrative of Exodus when Moses is on Mount Sinai meeting with the Lord in that bush that's aflame but not burning. And the Lord speaks to Moses and says, take off your sandals for the place that you're standing is holy ground. A similar experience would be for Joshua, Joshua chapter 5. When Joshua goes into the promised land and they're about ready to begin the conquest of the land. And Joshua meets with the angel of the Lord and he, he bows in worship and the angel of the Lord says, take off your sandals for where you're standing is holy ground. Indeed, the angel of the Lord was an emanation of God himself. And so the, the priest is barefoot within the house. We, we were visiting with some folks um, at a cottage yesterday morning and after a special little service and, and we, we, did the, we did the Dutch thing, even at the cottage. Shoes off. Shoes off at the door. Holy ground. I don't know if it's holy ground, but clean, right? Dutch clean. So it's intriguing, isn't it? But there's the ephod. It's kind of like a waistcoat like, uh, that, that covers over things. It's worn over everything else. And, and it has two stones up at the shoulders. And on the stones are engraved the, uh, the names of the tribes of Israel. They're onyx stones. And they remind, they remind the, the priest that he is there to serve the Lord and the Lord's people. And he is bearing them in the presence of the Lord. He's mediating their presence. He's interceding for the people in the presence of the Lord. The breastpiece is very similar in concept. It has 12 precious stones. Uh, one stone for each of the tribes of Israel because the Lord holds them precious. They are dear to him. And, and they too, uh, on the breastpiece, are in the presence of the Lord. The priest carries the people into the presence of the Lord, represents the people before the Lord, and represents the Lord before the people. Now, in, in the breastpiece, there's kind of a pocket. And within the pocket, a little, little pouch, are the Urim and the Thummim. And they would cast these, a yes, no. Now, you want to discern the will of the Lord, and they would cast the Urim and the Thummim in order to understand what the will of the Lord was. But you couldn't ask, you know, intricate questions like, should I marry Nancy or not? Which Nancy? Uh, I could ask yes or no question, but not which one question. The Urim and Thummim come with a yes or a no. The, the priest is there to discern the will of God for the people of God that justice would be done within the nation. Remember that this is the forming of a nation. And it is a theocracy. That is not a democracy. You, you thought democracy was the, was the best biblical kind of government in the world. Well, absolutely not. A theocracy where God is ruling is the best that could be. And Jesus is coming and he will rule in a perfect reign of righteousness 
Are you longing for his coming? Or are you feisty and fighting that things get better down here? Stop fighting and start longing for the coming of Jesus and a perfect government under his rule and reign. Well, remember that the priest is now functioning not only in a religious capacity, but, but in the governmental capacity. This is, this is like the Supreme Court. This is where justice is to be found and to be served. The Urim and the Thummim are not just things to toy around with for your little whims of, well, what should I have, chocolate today or not? This is, this is about the government, about the people being a just and holy people. Now the stones are mentioned and it's the same kind of stones that were mentioned in the Garden of Eden. And so again we're, we're brought to this, this picture where the tabernacle is a representative garden. It's a casting the vision of a people longing to get back into a garden state no, not the one out on the East Coast. A garden condition, a garden environment, a garden state, fellowship with the Lord their God. Longing to come into the garden. And of course, the book of Revelation uh, anticipates these same stones in the New Jerusalem. And the people of God gathered in his presence. And the dwelling place of God is with his people. We long to be in the garden with the Lord. Well, the breastpiece reminds the priest and reminds the people of that longing. The robe is there. It's blue with embroidered pomegranates. Again, fruit from the garden. And it bells at the bottom. And later we'll find out the reason that the bells are, are tinkling on the bottom of the robe is that when the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies, that, that inner sanctum where the mercy seat was, the Ark of the Covenant, with the cherubim, his throne room, and his footstool. When the high priest would enter into that, what once a year on the Day of Atonement, uh, the, the bells would be there to, to warn and to ensure that those on the outside know, okay, he's still moving. We can hear him moving around. He didn't drop dead inside there in the presence of the Lord. In fact, the story is told that at times they would tie a rope around the high priest when they go in. So if, they, if they, the bells stop, they can pull him out. The vestments, the clothing is there. The turban we mentioned, um, with a gold plate holy to the Lord. Now the clothing doesn't make the man. But clothing is important. Back when I was uh, a teenager, there was the book Dress for Success. Right? You, you envision where you want to be and you dress accordingly. Dress for success. Well, the, the clothing doesn't make the man, but clothing envisions who the man represents, what the man represents. And in this case, what this man is supposed to represent and be is a holy God. He represents a holy God and he represents the people before this holy God and he represents the holy God before a people. Clothing is vision casting 
and it anticipates the fulfillment that is to come. Now, the fulfillment would, would come only in one perfect high priest. As fancy as these vestments are, the, the priests, none of them have been perfect. In fact, that's why the tinkle bells are on the bottom of the robe. No one is righteous. No, not one. Fearful to come into the presence of the holy God. But there is one who would be perfect. And it's our Lord Jesus Christ. In Hebrews chapter 3 verse 1, Therefore, holy brothers who share the heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and the high priest of our confession. And we read Romans chapter 9 verses 11 to 12 already. Talking about the high priest who appeared for the good things. He, he completed and fulfilled all that was anticipated in these vestments. The righteousness and the holiness of one standing in your place before God. But, but even more than this, as if that weren't enough, because Christ is our great high priest, then he clothes us in his own righteousness that we might be the righteousness of God and we put him on. So New Testament passages like this to this effect. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 21. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Wow. We might be right with God, right before God. Galatians 3, 26 and 27. In Christ you are all children of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. If you belong to the Lord Jesus, you've been clothed with his righteousness. You've put on the Lord Jesus Christ. He is your vestment. Indeed, he is your wedding garb. He is your armor. The, the likeness of the breastplate and so forth of, of this high priest garb is likened to that of a warrior. This is holy war. And they are guardians uh, of the household of God. But yes, even we of the New Testament far, far away from this passage in Exodus 27, 28, 29. We too are clothed in even far better raiment than what's described in this chapter. Having, having been given what the priests are to wear, See, again, the clothes are here. They reveal the, the character and the nature of God. The colors, the fabrics are the same as those of the tabernacle tent itself. This is their place. This is their identity. This is where they serve. Well, chapter 29 then goes on to the whole ceremony. How do they 
become priests. You don't just put the garments on. That's part of the ceremony. There's, there's four elements to this. They're washed, they're robed, they're anointed. And then the sacrificing begins in chapter 29. These are all really important. And then there's a sequence to, to the sacrifices that would come. There's three main Old Testament sacrifices. There was the sin offering, the ascension offering, sometimes called the Holocaust or sometimes the burnt offering. But ascension is really the, the better term because it's, it's that it lofts up into the presence of the Lord completely. And then the third is the peace offering. And we could read through uh, chapter 29 and and get these. The sin offering is in verses 10 to 14. The ascension offering verses 15 to 18. And the peace offering verses 19 to 25. And you're thinking, well, this is wonderful. This is fantastic. We don't do sacrifices. Well, yeah, we do. Not animal sacrifices. But this is a pattern and order of Old Testament worship. It's repeated again and again. Leviticus 1, Leviticus 8, Leviticus 9, 2 Chronicles. It's, it's repeated. Well, you get a sequence even in Luke chapter 24. You get a sequence in the last chapters of John's Gospel. A similar kind of pattern. A sin offering, an ascension offering, and a peace offering. Just, just think of the narrative that the close of John's gospel quickly. Jesus dies on the cross for the sins of the world, the sin offering. And then, and then he is raised from the dead. He is raised. That's ascended. And uh, ultimately, he, he will ascend completely. Remember, he, he meets with Mary in the garden. He says, don't, don't latch on to me. You know, don't, don't make me try to stay. I, I've yet to ascend to my Father in heaven seated at his right hand. And then when Jesus meets with his disciples several times uh, on the Lord's day, throughout the afternoon and the evening, and the other appearances, he says, peace be with you. And Jesus eats with his disciples. That's part of the peace offering. You get to eat the peace offering. The sin offering for the forgiveness of sins, the ascension offering to dwell in the presence of the Lord, and the peace offering to actually fellowship with God at his table. The work of Jesus fulfills these things, satisfies these things. We can see it. And this, this becomes the, the pattern of worship that is indeed repeated. Now, um, I don't remember if where did I put that? It's coming. How does this relate to the New Testament? We got a glimpse of it already in John's Gospel. Luke 24 follows the same pattern. We read in First uh, Peter, in the Scripture readings, uh, kind of an, uh, a troubling passage in a way. We read that we are a royal priesthood. Offering spiritual sacrifices unto the Lord. Have you, have you considered yourself in the priesthood? Have you, ever, have you ever, you know, gotten in trouble of putting on a clerical collar and pretending, impersonating a priest? You've never even tried that? 
some TV personalities have gotten in trouble for impersonating a priest. You consider yourself a priest, a priestess. More importantly, it's a corporate identity. The believers are, are the royal priesthood. We together are the priesthood of the Lord. And from 1 Peter chapter 2, in those verses in 5, 9, and 10, but it's also in Revelation. Revelation 1, verse 5. They sang a new song. Uh, Revelation 5 and verse 9, sorry. They sang a new song. Worthy are you to take up the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth, a royal priesthood. This is the fulfillment of the work of Jesus Christ. Now, we, can, we could get all fancy and, and so forth, and we will just touch on it, but notice the sequence within the ordination. They're washed first, and they're robed, and they're anointed. That's the beginning of the Christian life. We've been washed in the blood of the Lamb, washed our sins away in the forgiving sacrifice of Jesus Christ. We've been, we've been dawned with the righteousness of Christ. We, we wear the garments of salvation, clothed in Jesus. And, and we've been anointed with His blessed presence in the Holy Spirit. And that, that has formed the beginning of your priesthood. That forms your ordination ceremony. And this becomes a, a pattern of worship. When we went through the book of Hebrews, we touched on these verses in chapter 8 and chapter 9. These things, the tabernacle things, the sacrificial things, Hebrews 8, 5 says, they serve as a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. Again, try to conceptualize this truth. The earthly tabernacle, the whole sacrificial system, is modeled on the way they worship in heaven. You read through Revelation. And if we read the whole thing through, we realize the Revelation is about worship more than it is apocalyptic prophecy. Worship the Lamb. And there around the throne are the four living creatures and the 24 elders and the myriads of angels and the saints that have gone before and they worship, and the way they worship is copied in the tabernacle structure. Hebrews 9 goes on to say that the first covenant, the one we're reading about in Exodus, had regulations for worship, all kinds of laws, and we're reading about parts of this, the, the template of the tabernacle and the pattern of the priesthood. But later in the chapter, he says, these things are symbolic for the present age. Not that we have to build an architecture that, that mimics the tabernacle physically, but the whole order and the sequence of tabernacle worship, the, the sequence of sacrificial worship, is the way they worship in heaven, and it's eternal. 
It's an eternal order of worship. The order of worship is not negotiable even today. When I read Hebrews 8 and 9, I get the distinct impression that the order of worship for the New Testament church, for us today, is the same as they would worship in heaven. The same pattern. We have envisioned here in Exodus 29 the order of worship. It's repeated again in Leviticus 1, 8, 9, 2 Chronicles 29, other places. There's some nuances within it. Indeed, sometimes the sacrifices are in a different order, but they contain these things. I, I would suggest to you that the way we've structured worship at Grace Bible is in some ways kind of unique, maybe even strange for a, a free church, a, a Bible church, a congregational kind of church, an independent church. Some of you with a, with a different denominational background come and say, well, this, this, is, this is like whatever denomination when I grew up. Well, I get that, but more so, we find the pattern in Scripture. It's not, it's not about a denominational tradition. It's not about a church tradition. It's about wanting to pattern the way we worship, the sequence and flow, the way it's done in heaven. The way God has revealed to his people throughout the ages how to approach him. A sin offering, an ascension offering, and a peace offering. We, we go through this. We acknowledge that we have sinned, but that Jesus has paid the price. In many services of North America, you will not get any confession of sin. The ascension offering is, is that wonderful sacrifice where the whole thing is burnt up into the heavens. Uh, do we have the, the next slide? I think it shows uh, the sequence and the order of worship in more terminology of today. God calls. We saw that in Exodus. God calls Aaron and his sons to, to Moses. And he says, this is what I'm going to do for you. And we begin with a call to worship. God calls his people through an agent to gather. We confess the sin offering. Lord, we, we have sinned, but that's not our identity anymore because of Jesus. We move to the consecration offering, the, the whole burnt offering. And in Hebrews chapter 4, you, you might be familiar with those, those words and the verses there. The word of God is living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword, dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It, this is sacrificial language. This is the knife of the priest cutting up the sacrifice. Cutting the sacrifice and then placing it on the altar in the shape that it would have been when it was alive and then igniting it and burning it up as a holocaust, a whole burnt offering smoked completely up into the heavens. Nothing left over 
but completely offered up to the Lord. And how is that done today? Hebrews 4, the Word of God. The Word of God is central to our worship. Now, it's, it's incorporated in many different facets of the worship all throughout. Lord willing, our prayers are based on Scripture's. Our praises, our testimonies, our music is based on Scripture truth. But th this unfolding and unpacking of the Word is, is where the Lord, by His Spirit, cuts us up. Cuts us to the heart. Cuts off the diseased, the sinful aspects of our spirit. And then offers us up completely unto the Lord. It's, it's like we would sing in the old days. I surrender all. That's the whole burnt offering. But it doesn't end only with that. And I know, I know that often in, in North American, Western evangelicalism, the sermon, the benediction, and off you go. But every worship service of the Old Covenant and every gathering of the New Testament church in, in scriptures ended with a meal. The peace offering, the fellowship offering, to linger in the presence of the Lord and fellowship with Him. In this sense, we worship only once a month. Now, within the order and structure of our service, often I'll move to the table for whatever the closing and ending elements of our service might be. Just, just to visualize and represent that this is really where we are in the movement of the service. We're, we're dwelling and dining with God our Creator and God our Redeemer. It's Psalm 23, which we love so much. He prepares a table for me even in the presence of my enemies. Not that we're the enemies, but in the midst of the world around us, we have a dining place where we meet with God and nothing else matters because we're united with Him. We commune with Him at the King's table. And from there, then He sends us out into that world as Adam was supposed to take the garden and expand it across the face of the earth as we go forth and make disciples in a world of darkness and death. He commissions us. He gives us his blessing, your face to shine upon you, his grace to be upon you, and go and make disciples. This, this order of worship that, that we try to follow is in Scripture. And again, I would, I would submit to you that based on Hebrews 8 and 9, it's not negotiable. Now, that's not to say that every gathering that we have as the people of God has to follow the same covenant renewal sequence. Not, not every gathering is a sermon gathering. Not every gathering is a covenant renewal gathering. Not every gathering has the Lord's table, Lord's Supper. In the New Testament, there are other elements that, that come in, like reports from missionaries seem to be an important part of the gathering of God's people, the, the gathering of a benevolent offering. By the way, the box is, is in the back in the foyer today. When we do celebrate the Lord's table, we, we make a special effort for the benevolent offering. 
But the pattern is here. Sin offering, ascension offering, peace offering. And so often we're in a grand hurry to get our fix on the word and then off we go. But the word in consecrating us, in cutting us up and offering us wholly up to the Lord is that we might linger in his presence. Do you long to be in his presence? Like Psalm 63, the music that Nellie played. I long for you. I thirst for you. Do you? Do you hunger and thirst for righteousness? And, and here at his table, he offers us the emblems, the, the symbols of all that satisfies the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. This is, this is the altar call. This is where God renews his offer to us and says, come, be refreshed, be renewed. Well, this is the element of, of our order of worship. But this last element, the oil lamps and the incense table, it's, it's almost a, 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 a small copy of the brazen altar, which was out in the front of the courtyard area. It's the, the big one where the burnt offering would take place. And then the incense offering is, is there. And, and it's one cubit square, about 18 inches or so square. And about two cubits about three feet or so high and incense is burnt on this and the oil is there to provide for the oil lamps and it's pure olive oil right pure olive oil so that there be as little smoke as possible inside the tent boy God is smart isn't he pure olive oil little smoke and it burns night and day because God never sleeps. He is ever watchful. Uh, I think it's the prophet Zephaniah likens the, 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 the seven lamps within the menorah of the, of the temple with the eyes of the Holy Spirit. The eyes of God are ever upon his people, ever watchful. This is convicting to us because he sees everything that you're doing. In fact, he even sees what you're doing inside your mind and inside your heart right now where you're seated. But it's also comforting. There's nowhere you can go, nowhere you can get, no trouble you can get into, but that God isn't there. It raises other questions I know. But God is ever-present for his children. And Romans 8 promises that he will turn everything around for your ultimate good. It might not look good or be good, the circumstances and the challenges that you're in at the very moment. But God is not thwarted by the enemy. God is not thwarted by the devil. As much as the devil would seek to undo you and destroy you, the old child of God, he is ever present. He never sleeps and never slumbers, and he will turn it around for victory. Again, Psalm 63, the king will exult in God who brings the victory. The incense altar is a nicety in some ways. It smells good. 
God cares even about how it smells. God is pleased with nice odors. Well, you are too. And God made you in his image. God cares about aesthetics. He does care about the smells. He does care about the sights. The symmetry of the brazen altar is in proportion the same way in the outer courtyard as this incense altar is in the inner holy place. They're the same proportions dimensionally. Does God care about structure? Does he care about symmetry? Does he care about design? Absolutely. God is in the aesthetics. God cares about art. He cares about engineering. He made them. We, as the people of God, care about all that is true and good and beautiful. Our aesthetics then inform our ethics. Our society has greatly lost those realities. But let's take a shortcut here. The Christian life is the aroma of Christ. Ephesians chapter 5, uh, verses 2 to 4. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up as a fragrant offering, a sacrifice to God. Jesus is the fulfillment of the incense offered before God, a pleasing aroma before God. Time and again, these sacrifices in the Old Testament, a pleasing aroma to God, a pleasing aroma to God, a fragrant offering unto the Lord. Is your life one that's a pleasing aroma, a fragrant offering under the Lord, or do you stink? Romans 12.1, in a similar fashion, presents your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. The way you control your body, the way you function in life, the way you use your eyes, your mouth, your nose, your hands, your ears are an offering unto the Lord. Are you fragrant, pleasing unto Him or a stench? And even more pointedly, our prayers are an incense offering to the Lord. Psalm 141 verse 2 puts it really clear. Let my prayer be counted as incense before you. The lifting of my hands as the evening sacrifice. We bring the sacrifice of praise. Revelation 5 verse 8. What a powerful picture of worship here. The living creatures, uh, the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Your prayers are as the incense wafting up into the throne room of God and collected into a censer at the heavenly altar. They're collected there. They're not just out there. It's the incense. Revelation 8 Verse 3, another angel came and stood at the altar with the golden censer and was given much incense to offer the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. How 
How's your prayer life? Are you, are you bringing that offering of, of sweet aroma and incense unto the Lord? Where he's gathering and collecting the prayers of the saints offered at the golden altar. Do you long for the Lord? Do you love the Lord? Do you want to, to be pleasing and fragrant unto him? That's what all this imagery is about. That we would be a royal priesthood. Well, here's the review. Jesus is our great high priest. And he has made us to be a royal priesthood. And we worship God according to the pattern that he gave us. Yes, even that pattern on Mount Sinai. No, not with animal sacrifices, but with the sacrifices, spiritual sacrifices of praise. And we offer these in the power of his Holy Spirit. So, Father, we come, we thank you for this uh, passage, this text of Scripture. We ask that indeed uh, we would be a worshiping people, that we would, we would relish in the wonders of your being, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And even now, Lord, as we would prepare to, to continue in worship and, and linger in your presence and dwell at your table, may we receive all the benefits and blessings that you promised to us. For every promise is yes in Jesus Christ. To his name be glory. Amen.